Welcome to the Inkwell Podcast. In today's episode, we are interviewing Scott Billings. Scott trained as a doctor of traditional Chinese medicine, completing his formal education at Victoria University and abroad in Taiwan. Scott majored in acupuncture, massage, and Chinese diet therapy. He went on to do a five-year apprenticeship under a Japanese acupuncture specialist, and has since completed postgrad studies in Minaka, Toyohari, and Kiko Japanese acupuncture styles. Scott is a qualified academic practitioner of the Australian branch of the Toyohari Association and past academic dean of the Melbourne branch for many years. He was a senior lecturer at the Australian Shiatsu College for 13 years, teaching pulse and tongue diagnostic techniques, moxa and cupping, as well as TCM theory. We are also joined once again by our wonderful co-host, Mr. Scott Brisbane. Scott is currently practicing craniosacral therapy out of the Australian Shiatsu College in Brunswick, Victoria. He has studied and taught traditional Chinese medicine and acupuncture, as well as naturopathy and flower essences. He also has a weekly Drew yoga class that he teaches and he explores various meditation techniques as part of his personal practice. And to lead us into the show today, we have Melbourne band Miso, who have recently reunited, which has brought a lot of excitement and joy to their fans. Uh, The music you'll hear on today's podcast is some of their older work from their first release. And if you're interested in hearing what they're up to these days, you can find them at soundcloud.com slash tuneintomiso. You can also find them on Facebook. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Well, uh, welcome to the show. We are back again with... A bunch of Scots this time. We have Scott Brisbane returning, and this week we also have Scott Billings. And so today we're just going to find out a little bit about yourself, Scott. So, um, yeah, where are you from? Like, where have you studied this kind of thing? Uh, you mean acupuncture? Yeah, well, well, first, where are you from? Like, where uh, are you from? Yeah, from Melbourne. I was born in Melbourne. Um, so, grew up here and studied here initially. In terms of acupuncture, the I was studying acupuncture at uni, I mean, sorry, Japanese language at uni for a year, and then went over to Japan. I landed a job over there and spent a year and a half or so and was practicing martial arts and working. And the teacher I was training with was an acupuncturist and a Japanese chiropractor. So he started teaching some basic, you know, philosophies and practices and principles of meridian style therapy and so on. It really got me interested and it was something that I'd wanted to do particularly at um at university like when i was finished high school but i was a pretty lazy student in in high school and so i didn't get the grades to get into medicine or physiotherapy something like that which which looking back was actually a, a blessing in disguise i think whilst i would have enjoyed practicing those therapies i don't think they would have really nurtured and developed the things in me that uh, i really value now having studied um, meridian style therapies what martial art was it that you were practicing at the time? Uh, originally, it was in Australia. It was um, Zendikai and um, a few other styles, and then in in Japan, it was Shorinji Kempa, which is um, a mix of Aikido and Karate. So it's got all the locks and throws of Aikido, and then the the strikes of, of Karate as well. Cool. Yeah, it was it was a good style, and the, and the teacher was great. He was very very humble man, and. Um, very strong internally, but a really um, a, a good teacher and a good practitioner, and so it was a good it was a good representation of what mixing, you know, martial arts, meditation, and then sort of clinical work together can can help to support a person, you know, to develop certain virtues and qualities. What philosophy was he drawing himself from? I think mostly in Japan, it's the, it's the Zen tradition. Hmm. Nothing specific, you know, he had a lot of Buddhist influences, but within, I think, inherent within the the martial practices in Japan is that reflective, contemplative and understanding of, you know, the harmony of of life and nature. So whether it's more specifically Zen or Shinto, you know, in Japanese, those things are quite synthesized, so it makes a good good blend of things. So, um, yeah, I spent, I was there for a year and a half and then coming back to to um, Australia via or via Europe I spent a, a bit of time traveling around Europe I came back and started um, studying acupuncture at uni which was which was fantastic you know four years at university and to, to study in, in some ways 
obviously having that time to dedicate the study about the body and psychology and the spirit was was really rewarding for me i felt that the university environment was was not dry but um it could have or perhaps it can't but it was i was looking for people to be able to guide me and mentor me and there was only one or two teachers that i really found embodied the real essence of what chinese medicine is and so on the one hand we, you know we would get the the theoretical and the and the sort of straight practical side of uh, acupuncture there wasn't a, a a deeper understanding of really what what is the foundation of chinese medicine and meridian style practices that really inspired me we had a couple of um a sessional teacher come through that you know really knew how the body worked and how to work with the body and how to understand and interact with energy uh, in a meridian context and so that really sparked an, an interest for me and started leading me more towards the, the japanese styles there was maybe only a handful of people at university that really were interested in going beyond just the mainstream tcm approach to acupuncture and what is the issues or flaws in the TCM approach? That no, no, no real issues or flaws. I mean, it's a valid system and it and it um, it works. Often because it's combined herbs and acupuncture, I think there's less capacity for acupuncturists in a herbal acupuncture setting to really differentiate what's working and what's not working, and or what was effective and what wasn't effective. Hmm. And so, what I think what drove me mostly was I was quite drawn to the intellectual side of the practice and the medicine and what really wanted to understand what I was doing and why. And whilst there can be an overview of to be able to perceive diagnostically what you're trying to, to achieve, it's harder to get the confirmation within the clinical setting in a TCM diagnosis. So for instance, um, we weren't taught a great deal of abdominal palpation. The pulse diagnosis was very rudimentary. And so, you know, you would take do a basic diagnostic process, get some information, apply a treatment, and then your feedback would basically be the person came back the next week and there would either be an alleviation of symptoms or not. Mm. Whereas what I started to see in the, in the Japanese styles was a much more interactive approach to treatment whereby symptoms, uh, abdominal diagnosis, pulse diagnosis, within, within the immediacy of the treatment became feedback itself, at, at, just at a beginning level. And then, you know, as I started to study more so, the actual treatment itself became the feedback tool where, you know, you start to perceive the movement of energy in someone's body and how it moves and where it moves becomes a, fi a feedback or a guide as to whether or not what we're doing is, is having the intended effect uh, therapeutically and energetically. And so that was sort of, that, that interest was sparked at the end of university. And I think also, I mean, I had quite a... Um, a lot of shifts going on just in myself through that four-year process you know starting a uh, the study of a medicine like that at quite a young age i was only 20 and you know in many ways immature in in lots of respects to life and, and myself and then having you know in growing up and having a lot of life experiences and starting to study deeper aspects of you know psychology and esoteric studies i wanted to join those together because it felt that as we were taught things in Chinese medicine, although the foundation of Chinese medicine was really based on a spiritual understanding of a human being, the application or the practice of that in the clinical setting was that they were divorced or separated. Hmm. And, you know, inherently it seemed that, the, that they, they were intended to be, to be joined. In fact, they, they couldn't be separated. But, um, and this, this sort of coincided while studying. I had a couple of quite serious injuries practicing martial arts and meant that I couldn't, I couldn't practice as I, as I had wanted to and so started to move more into gentler styles so then qigong and different styles of qigong and then getting more into meditation and and then i was spent some time in in taiwan i got a scholarship to, to taiwan and was studying at the at the university studying chinese language and also at the the medical college and through a series of events met up with some really amazing people and and got to um spend some time in a buddhist temple and um, with some some really amazing qigong practitioners and so this this you know as it ran alongside my study of chinese medicine really supported or developed in me a real want to to see on myself from one or from one perspective that in terms of the 
the therapy being effective, uh, it had to have that joining of that deeper understanding or foundational understanding of this um, spiritual or esoteric aspect and the psychological and energetic component of therapy. And also then the requirement for a practitioner to really cultivate that in themselves. Mm. It really had an impact on me seeing that you could you could practice Chinese medicine and be an effective practitioner, but there was a limit to you know personal development as a practitioner and there was a limit to the effectiveness of the therapy which you know is, is a beautiful realization that in a therapeutic environment it's not just that we have a practitioner and then we have a patient and then there's a treatment that's applied you know there's there is a real harmony interaction between those three components hmm. and the capacity for the patient to to recover for symptoms to abate to find health or you know a sense of, of inner sort of nourishment and development is obviously based upon the therapy that's applied, but also intrinsically linked to the to the understanding and the skill and the capacity of the practitioner. Mm. And again, that was something that was it was touched on in university, but more in just an offhanded way. You know that this is what they used to do in the in the classics, and but nowadays you just apply this treatment and everything will be fine. And I guess you're not really graded on your personal cultivation. Like you don't get to the end of the year and they're like, oh, no, you've only done 20%. Yeah. Like <laughs> another year for you, which... I guess that's the challenge that faces, you know, uh, the education system, particularly in the West, is that we don't have a model for that and there's not a real way of cultivating it. And, you know, on finishing university, uh, I was really fortunate that I, I got to do a lot of post-grad study and I also did an apprenticeship um, with a Japanese acupuncturist mm. and again he really embodied those things that I was searching for in the medicine and also in myself you know to see that someone's level of being who they are as, as a person and the virtues that they hold and their their inherent qualities fundamentally impacts on um, how they interact with the person and then influences the treatment that they give. So does this uh, I understand there's difficulties in uh, like clinical trials in relation to uh, these kinds of therapies. Have you looked into people who are addressing that kind of concern, like how you would actually be able to clinically test or, or empirically prove that these therapies work on a given that it is such a reliance on the, the practitioner themselves? I mean, if I hear what you're saying, the, the subtler therapies, there is quite a lot of research going on. Stephen Birch, who's a, a Japanese acupuncturist, he, he's very involved in clinical research and not just clinical research trying to prove acupuncture is effective. I think he's come to the point or the, the point of view that we can't approach research from the idea that we have to prove that acupuncture exists. Mm. We have to take it from the viewpoint that it does exist and try and understand the mechanism through which it, it, you know, it works. Mm. And so a lot of the research he's done is on a, a vast or broad spectrum of things from... Uh, for instance, contact needling, where the needles are just contact the skin and don't actually penetrate or insert through through the skin itself. You know, this traditionally was used as the um, as the sham or the the blind study, mm. and to see that you know a needle doesn't even have to penetrate the skin; it can just simply contact the skin. And in fact, different metals can have a different effect or influence upon the the flow of energy in the body. And so at a basic sort of energetic level, he, he is looking at research in that, in that regard. And then also, he's also looking at, at consciousness and, and how consciousness influences the treatment itself. And that the consciousness of the practitioner, whether we say elevated or expanded, similarly has a profound impact on the efficacy of the treatment. Mm. And so if, if a practitioner has a certain level of consciousness... Uh, a capacity, you know, to describe that better, a level of consciousness in, in saying that their experiential understanding of the medicine, the meridian system, the techniques that they're applying, if it's physical, limited to a physical scope, then that's the scope of their influence. Mm. If the practitioner is able to, again, experientially perceive and interact with energy at a broader level, now we go into the meridian system, and systems of energetic interaction beyond just the um, the meridian system of the patient, then we're getting broader and broader levels of um, of interaction to which the the practice the consciousness of the practitioner can be inter in involved in. So 
then we start to see a relationship between the practitioner and the, and the patient, between the environment that the practitioner and patient are in, you know, the setting of the clinical room itself, but also, you know, traditionally or historically, Ch Chinese medicine is based upon all of these cyclical patterns, energetic movements that exist on a 24-hour cycle, or firstly, a two-hourly cycle, a 24-hour cycle, a 10-day cycle, a monthly cycle, and so on into much bigger and bigger and greater and greater cycles. Mm. And I find it a little overwhelming, you know, the, we're told that um, Chinese medicine is founded in the, in the classics, and I, I, I read the classics and try and understand them, and it says, unless as an acupuncturist we can understand and consciously interact uh, with these cycles and rhythms, we're not a real acupuncturist. And I, I can't even fathom them. So, you know, does, does that mean that I'm not an acupuncturist? Well, it means I'm, a, I'm an entry-level acupuncturist, you know, applying a, a rudimentary technique. But to really develop mastery of something um, means we, we need a really profound and deep understanding of the energetic movements that move inside someone's body, mm. but also their, their connection and relationship to, to the environment and the, and the cosmos, which then... You know, I think the reason I was drawn to this was because it looks at the relationship a human being has to to the universe, to, to reality. Mm. And we can't separate those two things. And so we have an interaction between a, a practitioner and a patient. And that's happening at a certain time, in a certain season, in a certain place. And all of that has an impact on the efficacy of the treatment. Mm. Um, and so, again, I think when I finished university, I felt really underprepared Perhaps most people feel that way. I didn't feel I had the confidence because I saw the inherent responsibility that was that was implied in be, being a practitioner. Um, and you know, at university, I saw there was there was two main groups of people, or maybe more. You know, people that had this idea that Chinese medicine was a bit sort of airy fairy, and you know, we could just apply these these treatments, and it, everything was nice, and it felt good, and people would feel nice, and it was a uh, a nurturing environment to be in and not that I think that's not important but I wanted to be a medical practitioner and if someone turns up to the clinic if they have psychological problems if they have s significant physical problems and disease you know I wanted to be able to address it and understand it and not just an airy-fairy thing of you know people come in and there's nice incense in the air and everything looks beautiful and there's you know music playing in the background and we give them a really nice experience not to say that that's not important it's you know the clinical environment is important but i think in a way that can that can cover cover our our inabilities or insecurities you know we try and create an environment to cover what we really don't know and i was quite aware of what i didn't know and what i wasn't capable of doing and so i really wanted i saw the inherent responsibility in being a practitioner and and wanted to, to be able to deal with things in a really professional way. I guess I've just been really fortunate in, in the people that I've come across and the people that I've been able to study with and learn from. They've been really professional people. And they've taken their, their profession and their vocation, you know, really as an important part of their life. And, and seen it as something that they have to develop. And it's something that, um, you know, they have to work on themselves and they have to work on their skills. And in that sense, it's been a really beautiful a journey you know, to, to, to move through that, that process. Yeah, thanks, Link. Uh, Scott, that's fantastic, fantastic summary of how you got to where you are today. I'm kind of um, interested in, I'm interested in a lot of things that you're actually saying, but... Um, I'm interested in the practical aspect of what's happening between the client and the practitioner and what kind of space do you ideally have yourself in in that situation when the client walks in and sits down and perhaps you've met them for the first time or this is the first time you've met them. Where, where are you ideally, uh, physically, mentally, spiritually, energetically? Ideally just in the present moment. You know, I think the um, a, a teacher of mine once said, you know, the treatment begins as soon as the person rings up. Hmm. You know that the, the the first level interaction is there, and 
Um, this is one of uh, a Japanese teacher, and he would say that w- when he was first contacted that was contacted by the person, he would try and um, psychically perceive what was at an energetic or meridian level where the imbalances were and at a symptomatic level what types of signs and symptoms they had. Sure. And then when they walked in the room, he would know whether he was right or not, you know. And so then first meeting someone, I think the, the most important thing uh, that I've seen with, with most of the teachers that I have is, is rapport. You know, irrespective of being an intellectual person, I can get, um, I have the tendency to get carried away with thinking too much or thinking about things too, too intently, mm. but to really just meet someone and to make them feel at ease and to let them know what, um, you know, what's about to take place. And it's difficult, you know, there's, there's time restraints and all of this is, is going on in a, in a clinical setting. But I think the main thing is to really just, just to meet someone and to, to the degree that's possible, connect with them and try and get a feel through various sort of means and levels of communication, what they're wanting and how it is that I can address those needs. And then to, to start the, or to continue the process of diagnosis and then, and then treatment, but not, you know, not to separate those things. I think treatment and, you know, this idea of rapport is, is really gaining someone's trust and they're putting, you know, themselves in, in our hands as practitioners. And so, you know, when we meet them to really, to try and engender and establish that, that trust, you know, more so energetically because, because of, again, the the style of of acupuncture that I practice is very subtle and energetic. I've seen and experienced if someone, if there's a personality clash or if I say or do something inappropriate or if the person feels in some way protective, then it's a real blockage to treatment. Mm -hmm. And if, if that's if that's within the person before they come, let's say they're skeptical or they've been told to come by their partner, you know, it can take some time, some treatments even, to begin to try and support them to get to a place where they, they feel comfortable to just relax. And then I've also seen, you know, I've, it's been a couple of occasions, fortunately only a couple, where I, I have said something inappropriate or not inappropriate, but I haven't been considerate to where someone's at and have made a comment and I've just felt that that rapport just disappear and it's very difficult to get it back mm. and so because of the nature of the treatment we do it's you know I find that's really important so when I when I first meet someone um, that's sort of what I'm really trying to establish. We don't know where people have come from Scott you know like and um, so they might have come from a world where the the word orange um, meant that they got whipped and all of a sudden you mentioned the word orange and the rapport is broken, you know, like, yeah, uh, yeah you just can't um, be ready for all circumstances at all times. I'm kind of interested, you know, like, um, in, and feel a little pedantic about, because uh, I understand the rapport thing and, and, and I was just wondering if you'd had broken that down either energetically or even um, or whether you consciously uh, do anything um, in the clinical setting to help the person to feel comfortable or whether that's just a, a felt and intuitive thing? Oh, perhaps a bit of both. I think one of the joys for me in being a practitioner is we meet so many different types of people. Yeah, sure. And... Although for me, I, I really try to be integral in that sense. I have a, I have a good sense of who I am and, and I don't ever want to be fake. But I can be different things for different people. Mm. Not, not that I compromise, you know, who I am, but if someone's skeptical and, and they've been told to come to the clinic by their partner and they don't really believe acupuncture works, then I'll interact with them at a level where just to provide them with information, again, whether it's at an intellectual level to give them a, a really good description of what acupuncture is and how it works, as opposed to someone else who, you know, has an understanding of acupuncture um, or whatever th- the therapy it may be, but they're, they're very timid or frightened. You know, then it's a, different, it's a different means of interacting with that person. I don't have to provide a really the- theoretical or technical description of what it is. Mm. Um, it just needs to be a very gentle approach so that they feel comfortable and safe and then that you know that that trust is is developed 
how do you uh, explain or what, what do you say to a sceptical person when they come in in terms of uh, the, the mechanism that you're employing? A lot of it would depend on, on their background. Um, you know, I think the best way to reach people is through the language that they understand. And so if it's a, if it's a business type person, you know, you, you, can, you, can, des- you can describe something, not, not in terms of economic principles, but you, know, you can describe how the body works in that way if it's if it's an engineer you can describe it at it from an engineering perspective mm. you, you get the sense of what i'm saying yeah sure so to, if i just give them a straight tcm or meridian based therapy lingo they won't understand it and they won't connect with it and then i've failed mm. in, in really you know establishing that trust so to try and get a sense you look at someone if they're married if they've got children what their profession is you know what their physique's like what their body language is saying <clears throat> how well they're dressed and then they can give an insight okay what does this person need so that they understand what's going to happen here. Ah, hmm. uh, Link, thanks. Uh, Link's a very intuitive podcaster. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have lots of questions here. As you're talking, you know, like I have questions flying through my mind, but my, the latest one is uh, trust is a really interesting issue and um, there, I find that there's kind of uh, lots of levels of trust. There's the initial level of trust, which quite often you get you know, quite quickly uh, when the person just decides that they like you and they feel comfortable with you. And then when you're working with their body and their energy system uh, or there's the interaction between you and the client and your energy system and their energy system start to work together and respond to each other, there are levels of kind of holding um, and uh, even those can sometimes break down in the early sessions and then there's deeper levels of trust and holding. I was just wondering um, what you thought about that. Yeah, it's a really good question. Uh, and again, I think this is why for me I've, I've seen the relationship of personal development as a practitioner, you know, just inherent within practice, um, clinical practice. And, you know, I find that really, although it's difficult, if you see that in a, in a, a clinical setting that there's something inside of, of me or us as practitioners that has prevented that from happening, um, then you can, you can work on it. And this is why, again, when I, was, um, I did my apprenticeship, uh, I had an idea of, of what a practitioner was. And again, I, because I was... Um, had a tendency towards studying a lot and really understanding the, the theoretical aspect of um, acupuncture. You know, when I first started my apprenticeship, my teacher said to me, I'm not going to teach you anything, um, but just pay attention and you might learn something. And it really, it struck me. And I thought, okay, this is, I have to, you know, be a different different way here to really try and learn. And so basically it was just observation, not just of what he was doing, but how he was doing it. Mm. And in so many ways, you know, just being around him, you know, a seasoned practitioner, someone 35 years in practice and who really, they've developed a lot of things that, um, that can't be taught, that just develop because of the amount of time you spend interacting with someone in that environment, energetically and, and otherwise. And, you know, I would see him do things uh, technically that I was incapable of doing and just try and perceive how, how he did that, that you know, I had an idea, for example, that um, I would feel something in the pulse that indicated that was it, that there was certainly there was something going on in a particular meridian. It related to certain symptoms, and therefore it required a particular technique. And um, there was something that I wasn't able to do. And then I would see him do it, and think, okay, what's you know, he's doing a different technique, but he's getting a diff- this, the intended result in which I'm not getting. So there's something going on. There's something that's in him that I don't have that enables him to be therapeutically effective, mm. if you get a sense of what yeah. I mean. And then just the interaction with people. You know, I felt um, there was this one uh, a moment that, that always stays with me. The, he had two beds and there was just a curtain between the rooms. Mm. And so, um, you know, you, over time you get to know people and there was these two women that were in the clinic. And one was such a friendly, sort of grateful um woman and every time she came in you know we had a nice conversation and she was always very very kind and and as i said very grateful and then there was another woman uh you know two meters away 
behind another curtain who was she was just angry angry person you know she'd had a lot of hardship in her life and difficulty and she was ungrateful and she was you know not negative but just hard, hard to be around and so over the course of this half an hour an hour or so I, I watched myself walking between these through this curtain and it was almost like I had bipolar disorder like I would I would walk through the curtain and back to this woman that was very kind and suddenly my energy would shift and I would, you know, my energy lifted and I could feel oh, I'll continue the conversation and we have a nice conversation. And then I'd go back through the curtain and I would stiffen a little and I'd get a bit tense and I was anticipating, you know, this, this change. And so I looked over at my teacher and there was no change in him. Mm. You know, he was the same. And not, not, not so much the same. He was the same in himself, but he, he addressed the needs of those people differently. And I felt ashamed of myself. You know, it was really, it struck me that um, I'm not able to treat these people. I, I was giving a, a physically a treatment to them, but I wasn't able to treat them. Mm. And then another example, which always stays with, stayed with me, there was a young woman that came in and she was, um, I think she'd been quite affected by drugs and she'd had a lot of abuse in her life. And, you know, she was really unkempt and, um, and I felt uncomfortable being around her and and then I watched my, my teacher with her and, you know, the way he, he would stroke her arm while he was taking her pulse and it was like he was touching his daughter. And then I felt how I just recoiled and again, I just felt ashamed that I couldn't, that there was limits to my compassion or my capacity to, to just be in a, in a healing space with someone. Mm. And so those moments, you know, really struck me and I thought, okay, to, you know, to, really, to be a practitioner, we have to have we have to have that level of, of cultivation or capacity to to forego our own biases and judgments and criticisms of people because um, if we want to help people, they impact on our treatment. That's really interesting. They're great stories. The um, the the person who had the um, uh, the the drug problems and a difficult childhood or difficult life, and the and he stroked her arm. Now I take it that he didn't necessarily stroke everyone's arm, but he actually had a, a level of um, um, understanding and uh, and other qualities that understood her at a level that was pretty amazing really yeah profoundly i mean he coming back to what we were talking about before this idea of trust um th that's what she needed and he, he would do that quite often with people you know he had this this capacity through touch to put people at ease which is because you know our hands are a big part of the way that we interact with people to develop that capacity through touch is uh is amazing yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I remember having a, an experience um, uh, from a craniosacral therapist. I was receiving the treatment and um, having... I, I, I can't actually remember the, uh, the state I was in, uh, either emotionally or, or really physically, but uh, the treatment had kind of um, gone to a, a certain depth that a tear had rolled out of my right eye. And... Um, that was absolutely fine. I was comfortable with the tear, and I, I don't know whether it was necessarily sadness or whether it was just a tear rolling out of my right eye. But I do know what followed. And uh, the practitioner, with her little finger, stroked my face and wiped the tear off my cheek, and I melted. And uh, I remembered the mo that moment. And, and I remembered the moment because of the tenderness. And uh, what's behind the tenderness is this incredible care and love. And uh, it was a really important moment for me as a practitioner to actually feel this tenderness coming from this person who was really um, just my practitioner in some ways. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, it's a beautiful story. And I think, you know, that's something that maybe it's alluded to at, at university or seminars these days, but to, to develop that as a practitioner is really, um, as I was saying before, you know, in terms of the research that, that's being conducted now, it is on, at that level where th that, that's healing, that's therapeutic.
Yeah, so, so Scott, I ju- just uh, need to ask this. Do we love our clients? Well, I think love is such a broad term. Uh, I, think, I think we have to be loving people. Uh, and I think love is, is unfortunately a term that's misused and misunderstood. But I think definitely we, we need to have love within us. It has to be a part of who we are as human beings. And then that naturally influences and affects the people that we interact with. So indirectly, yes, we, we, we love our patients. Um, but it's, you know, we, we, there's a difference then to, to, to differentiate between obviously it's, it's not pity and it's not romantic and it's just a, it's a, love, for, a love for their condition, whatever that is. Sure. Um, but I think, you know, love is, is, is something that's really important to develop and it's something that's, um, it is a, is a quality and a, a state of being and it's at a level of, of development that I think is really important. As is, you know, wisdom, for example. You know, these are qualities that I think as practitioners um, are, are undervalued but are, are fundamental really to, be, to becoming practitioners. And like we were you know, talking about before, before in terms of um, cultivation as a practitioner, um, there's so many things that we have to cultivate. You know, when, when we start, we're, we're developing our diagnostic skills and our, our understanding of the mechanics of the body and, and we're developing our skill, our technical skill. But once, and, and that will go on, you know, I guess for, for our whole lives because the body is so um, um, complex. But as for ourselves, you know, develop, to, to develop um, those capacities, the capacity of, of wisdom and, and love and compassion. Uh, you know, I think if the current Western medical model had those things, it would be profoundly different. Mm. Yeah, it'd be amazing. Yeah. And it sounds like uh, previously there was some aspect of that in terms of your family doctor and this person would come out to your house and they'd know your family and yeah that's right yeah, it's more like a yeah and, yeah i mean nowadays i hear quite a few stories someone was talking to me about it the other day you know the um the doctor's telling someone that they've got cancer and they're going to die and they're not even looking at the person it's like they're not even in the room they're just they're just a, a third person in the room you know and that's they're being told they're going to die I mean, I've had different experiences. Obviously, that's that, that's a worst-case scenario. The, mm. I remember when my, my dad was dying, he, he had cancer, and um, his oncologist actually held his hand and told him that he was going to die or that he had cancer and, and in, most likely he would die, and, and a tear came out of his, you know, he shed a tear. Mm. And that's the sort of, you know, that, that's, a, that's a practitioner. I think there's this idea in Western medicine that it has to be so objective that you know, emotion is seen as, as negative, but it's, um, it's, that's what being human is. Yeah. And there does seem to be a consideration of, is that idea of not getting too invested uh, emotionally and, and these kinds of things in people like remaining professional. And um, we've spoken before about our kind of slightly anti-professional, uh, views on this podcast in, in, in relation to that kind of thing. Uh, but where is that line you know because and you're talking about love and these other things as well like there is this i mean we're not separate we're not really separate and energetically we're we're merging and interacting with each other all the time and emotionally and all these things um i imagine what the the cultivation within yourself this center this understanding of yourself is probably the the strength that would allow you to then uh connect and and, Mm. yeah have this kind of compassion as well yeah, I think in that regard too. The, um, I mean, love is a difficult word, but as a practitioner, you know, we have to be, um, or at different times, need to be different things to, to the patients or the people that we're treating. Mm. And it can be loving to be not, well, to be stern with someone. You know, to say to someone, that the stern's probably the wrong word, but if we see that someone is repeatedly heading down a brick road or a road that just has a brick wall at the end of it, mm. um, you know, is it our responsibility as a practitioner to try and get them to turn around? Will the, the therapy in itself do it? Um, what, is, what is our responsibility? They're good questions, Scott. Can you please answer yeah. them? <laughs> <laughs> you know, for a long time I've thought, I, um, again, because of the training I had, particularly with the, um, the, 
um, my teacher I did the apprenticeship with, perhaps it was because of his limited English or perhaps it was because he's Japanese, but um, he wasn't very directive or prescriptive in terms of people's lifestyle and, you know, their, their, his um, dietary advice amounted to, amounted to about two sentences and lifestyle similarly. He trusted his treatment. And I think having confidence and trust in our treatment is really important. And so for a long time, I really considered that that was, that was it. You know, the, someone comes in for treatment and they're in a certain state, um, energetically and psychologically or emotionally. And within the process of the treatment, there, there's a shift. And then they go back out into the world and that creates a contrast. Uh, and then they interact with people and events and circumstances and gradually they move slowly back towards where they were. But through the process of treatment, in that sense, it can be educational. Mm. That by creating contrast, consciously or unconsciously, the people st they, they start to shift. They see that they feel this way after treatment and there's a degree of balance and harmony and um, you know proper circulation of the energy in their system and there's a degree of health. And then when they go back to work or when they're in traffic or when they meet up with their, their loved ones or if they have an argument, then that starts to, to change or deteriorate. And so the contrast in itself can be uh, educational. And so then, you know, I ask myself, is that enough or is it that I should give them more feedback on what I'm perceiving through the treatment that can be supportive of that, that change? And again, I think it depends upon the person. Um, I certainly feel I have a responsibility to, um, not that I am responsible for the, for the treatment, but I'm responsible to help someone understand themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that then becomes part of the education of the, the person that, that's getting treatment. You know, the treatment gives me an insight into them and I, I can share that with them. Some people um, aren't willing to hear it and some people are just wanting to be passive. They come and get treatment and it's more then on a conscious or unconscious level just through the contrast of getting treatment and going about their lives. Um, but some people you can see um, want to be inherently or actively involved in their treatment and so then I just give them what um, you know whatever support I can give them. I used to have a little test. No, it's not really a test, but um, a means to, to, to discern what type of person they were. And when they first would come in the first or second treatment, you know, we'd talk about lifestyle or so on. And I'd give them a, um, a basic abdominal, abdominal massage sheet, you know, a single A4 piece of paper, three steps. You can do it morning or evening, uh, but it's a supportive way to, you know, well, uh, just a means to, to start to get you in contact with your own body and your own energy and to do something to support yourself. And there's three types of people. The next week when they come back, you know, I'll say, oh, how'd you go with the abdominal shiatsu? The first type of person completely forgot about it, left it in my handbag, um, you know, didn't even think about it. This person is passive and it's unlikely, unless they get quite a bit of treatment, that they're going to be doing anything to actually support themselves. Mm. So I, I have to be more responsible then in supporting in terms of the treatment to get, to get them to a point where they might be able to do that. Mm. The next type of person is sitting on the fence. Yeah, I got home and I put it at the bedside table and I was going to do it every night, but I was so tired and I was so busy and I just didn't get around to it. Mm. Again, with this person with a bit of support, energetically or otherwise, they will take responsibility for themselves. And then the last type of person does it every day. As soon as they get home, they try it out and they do it every day and they give feedback on what they felt and they have questions about what was going on in their body. And this person's interacting and actively taking responsibility for themselves. And so this type of person, it's easy. You give them, they want to know what's going on in their body. They want to know what they can do to support themselves. And so giving them feedback about the imbalances in their system and various ways they can support themselves is, is good and, and valuable. For the person that's sitting on the fence, um, along with treatment, giving them a little bit of support is beneficial but too much and they'll feel overwhelmed and they might feel like they can't live up to it and so they'll stop. Yeah. And for the person that, that has no um, inclination or capacity or um, desire to, to actively be involved in treatment, I find that if I continue to ask them, um, they'll feel uncomfortable and it creates a, a barrier or a block between us mm -hmm. because it'll become like they'll feel guilty. They'll come in next week and they know that I'm going to ask if they've done their abdominal shiatsu and... If they say no again, they feel like they're failing. Mm. 
And so for that person, I just never ask. And it just becomes, you know, we do treatment and that's it. And so, you know, I try and figure out what type of person it is and what they need and what they're capable of, but still moving them in a direction where I think ideally or ultimately, you know, people can or should be self-responsible. That, that's the purpose of treatment, that um, people can, through, the, through a course of treatment, gain an insight and an understanding into themselves, their lifestyle, um, their biases, their predilections, and how they can subtly change things to, to, to generate and, and maintain a degree of health, rather than just having to, you know, just always just come along for treatment. But that's a really interesting point, because I know I've been there, um, where, like, overwhelmed or feeling like um, you're so, say for flexibility, it might be a good example, and you can kind of apply that same idea to everything, but, you know, my back is at a certain level of flexibility, and even attempting that stretch was just seemed impossible, and, and, and that alone would stop me from wanting to do it, I guess, or feeling like it was possible. Um, and so I'm really interested in, in that sort of point in a person's life where they're, yeah, how, how to help somebody uh, take those first steps that might last a year where you don't really feel like you're making much progress or, or you know, that or allowing someone to see that the uh, that you're not necessarily stretching today to feel better today. Like that little stretch is going to, it's going to be in the next week or you know, month, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think that's a, a difficult thing um, to be able to discern as a practitioner as to what, how we need to interact with people in that way. You know, some people we can encourage and, and push a little, but some people will just recoil from that. Mm. Or they'll feel guilty or they'll feel that they have to please you. or And that, that I don't think that's ultimately very beneficial. Um, so yeah, it's, it, I don't think there's a there's an absolute answer or a definitive guide to how we should do it. It's just, it's, you know, a feel that we get when we interact with people and just from experience, um, what's the best way to go about things. But it's, it, it can be elusive, you know, and there's, I think there's so many other factors and this is something that, um, I mean, I imagine over the next 20 years or so of clinical practice, I hope will open up more and more, but to see the deeper side of, of what this medicine is and, and what health is ultimately, you know, some people just want the alleviation of symptoms and some people want to be healthy and some people want to feel just well in themselves. And so there's a lot of different um, factors to, to treatment and what people are wanting to, to get out of it and, and how much they're willing to be involved in, in their course of treatment and their lives. And, um, but also the deeper side of, of, um, of what it is to be a human being, you know, there's people that come along and they might have a certain condition or a certain constitutional pattern and, you know, I would have treated five or six people previously with no problem at all. And this person, they just don't get better. And, you know, I really wonder to myself why, why that is. Why could a similar condition with a similar treatment not respond? And, you know, I think there's, there's certain factors that influence people that are beyond uh, the known, what's considered normal or the laws that we consider in life as just cause you know cause and effect in that regard mm -hmm. as to what why someone is in a particular situation that they're in and why they have that particular condition and why they're experiencing this pain or this suffering at this time in their life and um what purpose that's playing in their life and what ultimately that will lead them to mm -hmm. and what my role is in that as a practitioner you know not just as the alleviation of symptoms but to understand that this um, outside of just you know mechanical injury or basic you know lifestyle adjustment that people can go through serious conditions and um, you know they're, they're beneficial to them and their life and to, to try and get people to see that those things aren't just an obstacle to their life but they're part of their life and they'll provide them with things that if they didn't have them they wouldn't be able to appreciate or understand about themselves and and their circumstance so, for instance, for me, uh, as I mentioned, I had quite a serious injury with, with martial arts and it meant that I couldn't kick anymore. And at the time, it was devastating. I thought, you know, that's it. I'm, uh, I get, you know, I was so, so much of my identi identity was based around my practice and um, pra martial arts practice and 
circle of friends that I had and the direction that I thought I was moving. Mm. And then suddenly that stopped. And at the time, as I said, it was difficult. But looking back now through time and space, I can see if that didn't happen, I wouldn't be where I am today. Mm. And so, so many things of, of that nature affect um, can affect someone. And so to try and see that someone can be going through immense suffering um, physically or emotionally, and it's a really important point or part of their life. So uh, this makes me think about a few different things. Uh, one is that I've been thinking about this opportunity instead of obstacle idea. So yeah, you, you're presented with something, an injury, and that is an opportunity for, as a practitioner, to learn about that condition and treat it within yourself and then treat other people. Uh, and I'm sure that also applies to non-practitioners in, in a bunch of ways. Um, but this idea that you wouldn't be where you are now without these things happening, uh, when I first got into esoteric thought, uh, this idea of, I guess, destiny had a played a part in it because I'd just come through a phase where I was really depressed and, and I looked back at my childhood and my life and I, I just had so many regrets. Like I had, I'd, I'd screwed up in so many ways. I'd, I'd messed up my brain with, you know, substances, all these different things that I was negative about on myself and feeling guilty for. And then when I had this idea of, of destiny or, or, or fate, it's just kind of like neatly wrapped all that up in this little package. I was like, oh, cool. Well, you know, anything's okay and, you know, uh, it's all fine, whatever happens and I, I don't have to really worry too much about the mistakes I'm making uh, but recently I've been uh, I guess refining that idea a little bit more to the idea that um, destiny or fate is either a result of or uh, the same as self-effort so there's this kind of relationship between uh, yeah, self-effort and the choices you make in response to these obstacles and opportunities and things that then shape your destiny, um, but it's it's sort of paradoxical in a way. So um, yeah, I'm just wondering how you think about these. Uh, I mean, I guess they're they're slightly deeper, more spiritual concepts. But yeah, what what are your thoughts on them? Yeah, the, I mean, in the say in a Chinese medicine perspective, and you know, I um, do a, my spiritual practice is gnosis, and they have a distinction and a certain term for it. In a Chinese medical setting, it's a similar description, just different terms, but fate and destiny, destiny are two different things. Hmm. And so, for instance, uh, as it's described in Taoism, and to some degree um, in Chinese medicine, we have the inherent and the acquired uh, mind, or the, um, the, the pre-heaven shen and the post-heaven shen. So there's a description between something that's inherent and something that's acquired and the shen and the mind that we acquire in one particular lifetime is something that we just acquire through um inter you know the culture and time that we're born in the education that we get from our parents and at school and this relates to our fate that it's something that we require acquire in a particular lifetime and it's limited and it's um conditioned and uh, deterministic in that way and so in that sense it's it's fateful that because of the condition conditioning that we have um, there's an expected outcome mm. and destiny is another thing that destiny relates then to a much broader scope of experience and and being beyond uh, this one existence this implies obviously that we accept or at least are open to the idea that there's we have multiple existences but that beyond this one existence where we you know we have a physical body and we acquire and develop a personality and we have a, cer a certain set of conditionings that influence our, our psychology and our capacity to perceive things because of that conditioning it, it means that we will perceive things in a mechanical or mechanicalistic way and so then if they're quite rigid then that will be the way that we perceive things and then the outcome is is um you know expected but there is a reality that exists beyond that and that relates to um the deeper aspect of our well they say shen or consciousness that that existed prior to this current existence so the, the pre-heavenly shen unconditioned by 
everything that I just mentioned in terms of, you know, our body and our identity and who we think that we are and the things that we've acquired in this lifetime and the prejudices and bias and so on. And so this then relates to our destiny. You know, there's a destiny beyond um, what we're living in this moment and what we're living in this life. And so if we can see life from that bigger picture, then we can appreciate uh, everything that happens to us, sickness or otherwise, because we see that, that it has a purpose and it has a meaning and it will provide us with things that otherwise we wouldn't be exposed to. And it will give direction to our life that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves based upon the conditioning of that acquired mind. The acquired mind just wants everything to be easy and comfortable and for all its wishes to be fulfilled and for no obstacles to come into our path. But at a broader level, if we look back over our life and see the twists and turns of our life, you know, the obstacles that we've faced have given us the opportunity or exposed us to things that we wouldn't inherently or necessarily choose or even consider were possible or capable for us, but have given us something that is so so valuable um, that we can see the benefit of it in retrospect. And so the point then of spiritual practice is to become more and more able to perceive in the moment uh, the deeper purpose of that event or that circumstance or that obstacle um, from that perspective. And again, putting it back into a clinical setting, I think it can provide people a lot of um, comfort that there is that bigger picture to life, whether that's, you know, the, the death of someone, whether that's a serious illness, whether that's an injury, whether that's, or whatever it happens to be, that it will provide them with something that they don't necessarily or would inherently choose or want, but will be, will be valuable to them in their life. Well, that's the end of part one of our interview with Scott Billings. In part two, we go deeper into the spiritual and esoteric concepts that Scott has studied over the years. We talk about astral travel, our purpose in life, and the various vibrational layers and sheaths of existence. I found it to be tremendously interesting, and I hope you will too. Scott and his wife have recently moved to Glasgow in Scotland, and he is now practicing at Woodland Herbs, which is located at 100 Woodlands Road in Glasgow. If you're in Scotland and would like to make an appointment, you can contact the clinic by phone on 014 156 431 84 or via email, which is inquiries at woodlandherbs.co.uk. Scott also has his own website, which can be found at www.japanese-acupuncture.net. Which, if you're listening to this episode in a few years' time, I mean, I'm releasing this in 2016, uh, that might be the best way to contact him, as who knows where he'll be living by then. And as for our co-host, Scott Brisbane, Scott's Drew Yoga class is on weekly at the Shiatsu College, so for more information on making an appointment with Scott, you can email me at shiatsulink at gmail.com. That's S-H-I-A-T-S-U-L-I-N-K at gmail.com. Or you can contact the Australian Shiatsu College on 0393871161. If you're interested in being a guest on the show yourself, please get in contact. Or if you know a teacher or a practitioner that you think would be a really interesting guest, uh, the kind of teacher you've always wanted to hang out with after class but perhaps never got the chance to, uh, send them our way and, and you can hang out with them via the magic of cyberspace. So keep checking out www inkalot.net for more episodes and remember you can subscribe via itunes or a podcast app from an android phone my preference is podcast addict i think it's a great app and if you'd like to support the show you can give us a rating on itunes that's always very helpful or you can just promote the show via facebook or any other social media or just put them on a usb and hand them to a friend however you like just spread the word if you have any interest in becoming a Shiatsu therapist or just want to find out what it's all about, head on down to 103 Evans Street, Brunswick and say hello to the staff there. Uh, Jenny and Marie who run the college are just wonderful, wonderful people. Uh, they'll be more than happy to tell you all about it and, and show you around the space. It's, it's a, a really beautiful building and there's something about the, the energy of the place that's it's quite calming and yeah, nurturing and, and just lovely. 
You'll also find a range of other workshops and classes available there, as well as clinic spaces that can be rented if you're a practitioner. For more information, go to www.australianshiatsucollege.com.au And I will leave you now with one of my favourite teachers, Mr. Jack Cornfield. If you enjoy what you hear and you'd like to hear more of his talks and presentations, I recommend his podcast, The Jack Cornfield Heart Wisdom Hour, which you can find at beherenownetwork.com. I also recommend checking out Krishna Das and Tara Brach. They're on the same website and they are two excellent speakers as well. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Have a lovely day. Hope you join us again soon. Or the rabbi whose students came to him to say, when do we know that it is first light? As the light is turning and coming back this evening, this night, when can we tell when morning and dawn has come because there are special prayers to say at the first moment of dawn? Is it when you can look in the distance and see, tell the difference between a dog and a sheep? No, said the rabbi. Well, is it when you can look up on the hillside and distinguish the olive tree from the oak? No, said the rabbi. Well, is the light come when you can clearly see the lines in your hand? No, said the master. He said, the light has come when some being comes toward you and you can see that they are your brother or sister. Until then, it is still dark.